Amen. I want to invite you to take your Bible and turn with me to the book of Hosea, chapter 12. Hosea, chapter 12. If you are looking in the Pew Bible, you ought to find it on page 962. There is a, uh, a hymn that I grew up singing. We sing it here occasionally. Softly and tenderly, Jesus is calling, calling for you and for me. See on the portals he's waiting and watching, watching for you and for me. Come home, come home. Ye who are weary, come home. Earnestly, tenderly, Jesus is calling. Calling, O sinner, come home. I want to I confess something today, and that is that there was a time in my life when I was embarrassed by that song, if I can be completely honest with you, because I thought it made Jesus sound like this pitiful wuss who's just sitting on the porch in his rocking chair, twiddling his thumbs and helplessly hoping for sinners to come home. I thought to myself, wouldn't it be better if we sang a song that pictures Jesus going out and powerfully snatching sinners out of their hopelessness and bringing them home. After all, Jesus was the one who said that he came to seek and to save the lost. But metaphors can communicate something true without saying everything that is true all at once. We certainly don't need to picture Jesus like a pitiful guy with no friends, but that's not the point of the song. The point of the song is his willingness to accept whoever will come to him, and his invitation for them to come home. The fourth verse says, Oh, for the wonderful love he has promised, promised for you and for me. Though we have sinned, he has mercy and pardon, pardon for you and for me. The song is an invitation to sinners, to prodigal sons and daughters, and Every invitation is a promise. It speaks to those who are weary and heavy laden, and it promises that Jesus is willing and able to give rest if you will only come home. And when you really boil it down, that is pretty much the purpose of the book of Hosea as well. It is God speaking to His prodigal children and saying, O sinner, come home. So let's read together in Hosea chapter 12. We're going to begin in verse 2. The Lord has an indictment against Judah and will punish Jacob according to his ways. He will repay him according to his deeds. In the womb, he took his brother by the heel, and in his manhood, he strove with God. He strove with the angel and prevailed. He wept and sought his favor. He met God at Bethel, and there God spoke with us. The Lord, the God of hosts, the Lord is his memorial name. So you, by the help of your God, return. Hold fast to love and justice and wait continually for your God. We're going to pause there and let's pray together. Lord, we pray that you would help us to hear what you said to Israel so many years ago as a word to us as well, that you have not only spoken, but that you still speak by your Spirit through your Word. And so, Spirit of God, we pray that you would take this Word that you have inspired, this Word that is without truth, excuse me, that is without error, uh, that is fully truth, and that you would impress it upon our hearts, that you would help us to see how it applies to our lives, 
and that we would not only be hearers of the word, but doers as well, that we would not be like the person who looks into a mirror and walks away and immediately forgets what we have seen. But Lord, that by your spirit, that this would be a word we would not be able to forget, that we would see and hear the truth that you have to show to us. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Um, there's an old saying, I'm sure you've heard, that those who do not learn from the past are doomed to repeat it. Uh, Mark Twain said, history doesn't repeat, but it does rhyme. And either way, however you want to look at it, um, in the verses we just read, God is warning Israel about the danger of, of failing to, to learn from the past, the danger of repeating the past. And the, the way he does that is by reminding them about their ancestor, Jacob. It's kind of, kind of odd when you really stop and think about all that God has been saying to Israel through this book that suddenly he stops and gives them a history lesson about Jacob. But we're going to see why God does that. Um, names tend to be significant in the Old Testament. Uh, you, you even see that in the book of Hosea where God tells Hosea to, to give his children specific names, Jezreel, meaning bloodshed, and then no mercy, and then not my children. He tells them to name their, their children certain things because those have meanings. And uh, the name Jacob is one that has meaning as well. It's helpful to know, however, that the name Israel, before that name was given to a nation, it was first given to a particular man. Jacob was the name his, his parents gave to him. But God later gave him the name Israel. And those two names, Jacob and Israel, are significant. They have significant meanings not only for that particular man, but for the nation that descended from him. So the name Jacob means one who grabs by the heel or, or heel grabber. And the reason for that, Hosea reminds us of, God reminds us of in verse 3, when he says, "...in the womb he took his brother by the heel." So you may, may or may not remember much about that story, but Jacob had a twin brother named Esau. And Esau was actually the, the firstborn. Esau was the one who, one who came out of the womb first. But Jacob came out with his hand holding Esau's heel. That's why they gave him the name. That's why Isaac and Rebekah gave him the name Jacob, because they said he came out holding on to the heel. And then throughout their early life, Jacob was constantly trying to overtake his older brother. That, that pattern that even in the womb, it, it, it began to manifest itself in their, their life so that Jacob was constantly trying to, to trick his brother and overtake him. So much so that the name Jacob became synonymous with one who was a deceiver or a cheater. In fact, in fact Esau, um, his older brother, said of him, is he not rightly named Jacob? For he has cheated me these two times. He took away my birthright, and behold, now he has taken away my blessing. So the name Jacob is synonymous with someone who is a deceiver, a cheater, someone who, who takes something that does not rightly belong to him. Now, I remember hearing the, the story of Jacob and Esau when I was younger, and the takeaway was essentially... Don't be like Esau, who gave up so much for so little. He was so gullible, so easily deceived by his younger brother. So don't be like Esau. And there's some truth to that. 
But we, if we turn a blind eye to Jacob's sin, then we, we're missing something crucial. We're missing something that God wants to show us here in Hosea chapter 12, that Jacob was a trickster. He was a thief who cheated Esau out of his birthright and blessing. And so the takeaway is not, look how gullible Esau was or look how cunning Jacob was. The takeaway should be, look how merciful God is, that this deceiving thief is the one through whom he chooses to fulfill his promise of sending a redeemer. You see, God had promised all the way back in Genesis 3 that he was going to send a redeemer who was born of a woman. And then God told Abraham, that redeemer is going to come through you. And specifically, that redeemer is not going to come through Ishmael, but through your son Isaac. And so then Isaac has two sons. And you would naturally expect that the firstborn, Esau, would be the one who is the inheritor of that promise that he's going to be the one through whom that Redeemer comes. And yet in this incredible twist of circumstances, it's the deceiver. Jacob steals that blessing from Esau. The blessing that Jacob steals from Esau is not a monetary blessing. It is, it is the fact that now the Redeemer is going to come through his line, not through Esau's line. And so we would expect Esau to be the heir of that promise. Instead, contrary to all merit, it was Jacob. Paul says in Romans 9 that this reversal of expectations demonstrates that God's purpose stands not because of works, but because of Him who calls. So God showed Jacob unearned grace. So if the name Jacob means deceiver or cheater, what about the name Israel? Verse 3 goes on to, to say, "...in the womb he took his brother by the heel." And in his manhood, he strove with God. And that phrase, he strove with God, is a reference to the name Israel because the name Israel means he strives with God. That's what the name Israel means. He strives with God. God gave Jacob that name. So God changed Jacob's name to Israel because of an incident later in his life when he basically had a wrestling match with an angel. We don't have time to dive into that fully. But I'll simply say, um, as the father of two sons, there are times when I have lost, and I put quotes around that, lost a wrestling match to one of our boys. There's probably coming a day when I'm going to legitimately lose a wrestling match to them, when they will genuinely be able to overpower me. But that day has not come yet. And yet I have lost wrestling matches to them, not because they overpowered me, but because I let them win. And there's... There's no other way to explain Jacob's victory over the angel than that. When you see how powerful angels are in the Bible, you know that that's the case. But the question we have to ask is, why is Hosea giving us this history lesson about Jacob? Why is he reminding us that he's a deceiver who was so audacious as to think that he could wrestle an angel and win? The answer starts to become clearer in verse 4. It says, He strove with the angel and prevailed. He wept and sought his favor. What made Jacob right with God was not his cleverness, that he was so clever as to deceive everyone else and steal the blessing. It's not like God was hoodwinked. It's not like he said, Oh man, I was planning on giving that blessing to Esau, but instead now I have to give it to Jacob. And it's not Jacob's determination. It's not like God said, oh, I don't want to give this, but now Jacob has come and he's wrestled me and he won. The reason why 
Jacob has found favor with God is because God humbled him to the point where he sought the Lord's favor. He deceived and he strove, but he received favor because he wept and he sought the Lord's favor. And this is the lesson that Israel has to learn from their namesake. The, the, the nation has to learn from their ancestor that they will not and they cannot achieve God's favor through deceit or through cleverness or through force of will. There's not enough determination that they can have. There's not enough cleverness that they can aspire to. They have to lower themselves. They have to humble themselves and seek His favor. Hosea makes that point clear in verse 6 when he turns. And now we see really the point of this history lesson. He says, so you... I've been, I've been telling you about Jacob, and now here's the point. So you, by the help of your God, return. Hold fast to love and justice, and wait continually for your God. The problem is that Israel, at this particular point in time, had yet to be humbled like Jacob was. They had yet to walk away with a limp like Jacob did. And the evidence of that is in the way they continue to trust in their own strength and wisdom and righteousness and live according to their own desires. They are living their lives exactly how they want to live it. They have not yet submitted to the Lord. Earlier in the book, God laid out this threefold indictment against them, and you can hear echoes of those charges here in the last three chapters. God accused them first of having no steadfast love. He said, there is no steadfast love. This is my indictment against you. This is the charge that I'm pressing against you, which is to say, I have shown you mercy, but you're not showing that mercy to others. Notice what he says in verse 7. He says, a merchant in whose hands are false balances, he loves to oppress. This is one of the things that God accuses His people of many times in the Old Testament, that they, they defraud others. They, they oppress other people through injustice. And part of what it will mean for Israel to return to God is, as He put it in verse 6, to hold fast to love and justice. So it's not just loving other people in your heart, but it's checking and making sure that your balances are right so that you're not accidentally defrauding someone, so that you're not oppressing someone. Right now, they're failing at that. They're not doing justice to one another. They are oppressing one another with, with shady business practices. And God uses this as a sign to them to say, your heart is not right with me. You're still bringing your sacrifices. You're still bringing your offerings. You're still praying to me. You're still calling me your God. But you go out and you oppress people and you're not doing justice. And this is a sign that there is no steadfast love. There's no mercy when I've called for there to be mercy. Verse 8, Ephraim has said, Ah, but I am rich. I have found wealth for myself. In all my labors they cannot find in me iniquity or sin. That is... There's no other word for that than, than delusion. They are deluded. They have deceived themselves. And yet, this is one of the most common lies that humans tell themselves. That I am sufficient on my own. That I have all I need. I am all that I need. 
I'm not accountable to anyone else but myself. This is the lie that Adam and Eve believed. This is the lie that Israel believed. And this is the lie that you and I believe. In Revelation 3, Jesus tells the church at Laodicea, You say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. That's God's assessment of every human being apart from Jesus Christ. Wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked, which is to say you are in terrible need of the Lord. And it is a dangerous spiritual state to think that I don't need God to provide for me or to pardon me. All of those things can easily be overcome. That's why God says in the very next verse, Come to me, and I'll give you what you need. I'll give you clothes to cover your nakedness. I'll give you salve so that your eyes will be able to see. But the most dangerous state to be in is to think, I don't need to go to the Lord. I don't need what He has to offer. I don't need the, the gold that He offers freely. I don't need the white garments that He offers to me. I'm just fine in these filthy rags. And so this is a dangerous spiritual state for anyone to be in, and this is the state in which Israel found themselves. And so God reminds them in verse 9, I am the Lord your God from the land of Egypt. I will again make you dwell in tents as in the days of the appointed feast. God reminds them, all this wealth that you have, all this health that you have, all this prosperity that you have, all that I have given to you, I can just as easily take it away if you trust in it rather than in me. So that's the first charge is, is no steadfast love. The second thing he uses them of is no faithfulness, which is to say they have not trusted completely in him as their God. They've trusted in other things. They have hedged their bets. What God says about them in chapter 13, verse 2, is scandalous. And yet it's a picture of what sin does. Chapter 13, verse 2, he says, And now they sin more and more and make for themselves metal images, idols skillfully made of their silver, all of them the work of craftsmen. It is said of them, those who offer human sacrifice kiss calves. This is what sin does unless we confess it and turn from it. It leads us to sin more and more and more. Israel began to sort of toy around with Baal worship, thinking, well, we'll just sort of hedge our bets. We'll keep worshiping the Lord, but we'll maybe also worship these golden calves, you know, as if that nothing bad like that had ever happened before, right? No lessons to learn about what we're worshiping golden calves, and yet that's what they do. And then what happens? Well, eventually there's a whole economy that comes up around that because now you have, to have, you have to have craftsmen who are good at making these things. And now you have people whose livelihoods are based on keeping this up. And so if, if we stop worshiping these idols, well, well old Joseph, he's going to lose his job because he's a craftsman. and he, he makes a living off of making these golden calves that we can have at our shrines and have at our temples and have in our houses and all this kind of stuff. And so now repentance is way more costly than it was at the beginning. That's why we sang earlier... Savior like a shepherd lead us. There's a verse in that song that says, Early let us seek thy favor. Early let us do thy will. It's so much easier to, to worship the Lord and obey Him at the beginning than to walk way, way, way down this sinful road and then turn back. It's so much more costly on the back end than on the front end. And so Israel's sin has taken them farther than they wanted to go and it's cost them more than they wanted to pay. It, it eventually leads them 
to where he says, those who offer human sacrifice kiss calves. This was a part of Baal worship. Was, was taking your children and offering them in fire to this so-called God. And we look at that and we say, man, that's, that's messed up. But here's the thing. Our sin may not reach the exact same outcome, but it has the same effect. It has this pulling effect where it pulls us deeper and deeper and deeper. And before we know it, we're in way over our heads. And the more we refuse to turn from our sin, the more it leads to destruction and injustice and idolatry and even death. And so there's this accusation, no faithfulness, and there's this warning about what that will cost. And then the third indictment that God gives is there is there's no knowledge of God. They profess to know Him, but they don't live like people who truly know Him. He says to them in chapter 13, verse 4, But I am the Lord your God from the land of Egypt. So that's a reminder of how He had brought them out of slavery you know no God but me, and besides me there is no Savior. Verse 5, It was I who knew you in the wilderness in the land of drought. But when they had grazed, they became full. They were filled, and their heart was lifted up. Therefore, they forgot me. We often think that hardship, you know, losing things, that, that, that sickness or that poverty, that those things are, are danger to us. And they can be. We, we should, I'm not trying to make light of any of that stuff. But prosperity and health are just as dangerous for our soul. Because what they, the lie they tell us, if we, if we will listen to the whisper of the serpent, is, see, you're fine. You're full. You're content. And now you can lift your heart up. And you can forget about the Lord because you don't need Him anymore. You have all that you need. Israel mistook God's blessings for God Himself. They desired the gifts more than the giver, and it is leading them to destruction. And so God warns them. The second half of chapter 13 is filled with these warnings. Awful, awful warnings. This is what will happen if you continue to be unwilling to listen to me and to return to me, what God says to them is that this is going to result in a national death, as it were. The, the nation is going to be torn apart and devoured. God says in chapter 13, verse 15, though he, that is Ephraim, Israel, though he may flourish among his brothers... The east wind, the wind of the Lord shall come, rising from the wilderness, and his fountain shall dry up, his spring shall be parched, it shall strip his treasury of every precious thing. So the very thing that Israel so depended upon, its prosperity, God says he's going to take it away. And then in the middle of all these warnings, there is one verse in particular that I want you to notice, that I want to draw your attention to, and that is Hosea chapter 13, verse 14, God says, I shall ransom them from the power of Sheol. I shall redeem them from death. O death, where are your plagues? O Sheol, where is your sting? Compassion is hidden from my eyes. Now, simply put, there are two ways we could interpret this verse. 
and the two possibilities are very, very different. First, verse 14 could mean exactly what it appears to mean at first glance, that God will rescue them from Sheol and death. Sheol was another way of describing the place of the dead in the Old Testament. So if that's what verse 14 means, then verse 14 is like this oasis of hope in the middle of a desert filled with warnings because all before it are warnings of judgment and all after it are warnings of judgment. But there's another possible interpretation. In Hebrew, the first half of the verse is ambiguous. It could be a statement, I shall ransom them, or it could just as easily be a question. Shall I ransom them? In fact, I had this really weird thing happen to me just a second ago. I have this Bible that, that I preach from, but most of the week when I'm kind of reading and studying, I have my computer and it's opened up to ESV.org. And that's apparently an updated version of the ESV where it says, I shall ransom them. And I'm reading here in my Bible and it says, shall I ransom them? So in the, I guess somewhere along the way, they, they changed it to I shall ransom them and they put a footnote that says it could mean shall I. So the point is, in Hebrew, it could go either way. It could be, it could a, be statement. a statement, I shall ransom them from Sheol, or it could be a question, shall I ransom them? And when God says, O oh death, where are your plagues? That could be God's way of sort of taunting death, saying, come on, death, where are you at? Or... It could be God calling upon death as if He were saying, Come on, death, bring your plagues. Come on, Sheol, bring your sting upon my people. Now that second option, let's be honest, that does not seem appealing, right? We don't want it to mean that. And I, I, the truth is, I don't fully know. But that second option actually fits the context way better because then you have warning, 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 warning in chapter 13 instead of, Warning, warning, warning. Really good verse, warning, warning, warning. Now, we're going to come back to that, but either way, either way you read it, whether it's a statement or a question, death is not the final word, okay? Because, praise, praise God, Hosea does not end in chapter 13. There is a chapter 14. And so death is not the final word. And when you get to chapter 14, God reiterates the appeal that we've heard Him make so many times throughout this book. One of, One of the most common words in this book is the word return. And you hear it in chapter 14, verse 1, where He says, Return, O Israel, to the Lord your God, for you have stumbled because of your iniquity. In other words, you who are weary, you who have stumbled because of your sinfulness, come home. Return to the Lord your God. Seek His favor. And in chapter 14, verses 2 and 3, God tells them precisely what it will mean for them to repent, to return to Him. We, we saw last week, we talked about the, the prodigal son and how before he even went home, he had this sort of speech prepared in his head. God gives Israel words to say to him when they return. Look at verse 2. Take with you words and return to the Lord. Say to Him... So this is what they're supposed to say to God when they return to Him. Take away all iniquity. Accept what is good, and we will pay with bulls the vows of our lips. Now, that phrase, we will pay with bulls the vows of our lips, is a little tricky. But the gist seems to be that the offering of thanks we will give to the Lord is 
praise with our lips. The bulls are the bulls that we're going to offer to God are figurative. They are the praise of our lips, the vows of our lips. It's very similar to what Hebrews 13 verse 15 says, where it says, Let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is, the fruit of lips that acknowledge His name. There's a reason why, praise God, when we gather together to praise the name of the Lord, you know, Chad doesn't come up here and say, Okay, here's a call to worship. Let me slit this goat's neck real quick. We don't do that. Right? Because the fruit of our lips, the, the, the sacrifice of praise that we give to Him is not a goat or a bull, but it is lips that acknowledge His name. It is mouths that praise His name. So people who have been forgiven and cleansed and accepted by God are a people who speak His praise with their lips. But that's not where we stop. Verse 3 goes on. Assyria shall not save us. So this is still what we're saying to God. Assyria shall not save us. We will not ride on horses, and we will say no more, our God, to the work of our hands. In you the orphan finds mercy. Verse 3, this is what it means to repent, to return, to come home. It means not only turning to the Lord, but also turning away from other things in which I have put my trust. So in Israel's case, they had trusted in political alliances. And so God invites them to confess that Assyria shall not save us. They had relied on military strength. And so now God invites them to pray, we will not ride on horses. They're not, there's not anything inherently sinful about riding on horses, but there is something inherently sinful about trusting in the strength of those horses or in the strength of our military might to save us. Israel had put hope in idols, and so now God invites them to turn away from, from saying to the work of our hands, our God. And, and so in our lives, repentance means examining and, and asking ourselves, what are the things in which I am prone to trust more than God? What are, the, what are the specific things in my life that I am prone to put my trust in or to find my identity in rather than in God? And then we renounce our trust in those things and we return to Him and rest our hope in Him. And so it's as if Hosea is saying, ahead of you is destruction. If you keep walking this way, destruction is ahead. And behind you is your God. And if you want to live, you have to turn from one and toward the other. It's not just okay to, to say, okay, well, I'm going toward this sin, but now I'm going to go toward that sin. No, you've got to turn all the way around and return to your God. You have to turn from sin and return to your God. So I, I just want to encourage you, you have to examine that in your own life and ask yourself, what would repentance, what would full repentance look like in my life? What, what are the things I would have to turn from in order to return to God? And what I want us to see is, I, I want you to be motivated to, to do that by, by showing you that every invitation is a promise. Every invitation is, is a promise. If I invite you over for dinner at my home on a specific day at a specific time, assuming I've you know, squared that away with Rebecca first, um, I am inherently promising to you that if you will come to my home on that day at that time, I will receive you. 
and feed you, right? If I say, hey, why don't you come over Thursday night at 6 o'clock and we're going to eat supper? Do, are you worried about, about if, you, if you come and knock on my door that I'm going to say, mm, sorry, I changed my mind, right? No, right, because I invited you. Um, or, 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 you know, are you worried about, you know, well, he might let me in, but he might not let me eat. No, I told you, 6 o'clock Thursday night, my house, we're going to eat. So you can, you can, you know, as sure as my word is, which is not 100%, but as sure as my word is, you can come, I will let you in, and we'll eat. And, and here we have an invitation from one who is 100% sure and true that God says, return. Return. O Israel, to the Lord your God, because you have stumbled. And God says, if you'll come and bring these words, I will receive you. This, this God-ordained prayer ends with a word of confidence. God tells Israel to say to him, in you the orphan finds mercy. Of course, the Bible makes very clear that God has a special concern for literal orphans, but in that phrase, God is, is reminding Israel of something that He said at the beginning of this book. In chapter 1, God told Hosea to name his third-born child, not my people. And the reason He told Hosea to name the child that was because He told Israel, you are not my people and I am not your God. But then in the very next verse, God made a promise in the place where it was said to them, you are not my people, it shall be said to them, children of the living God. In other words, right now, Israel, you are spiritually orphans. You are not my people. But if you will return and come home, you will be called children of the living God. If you come home, you will find mercy. In you, the orphan finds mercy. God tells Israel, when you come, say this to me. When you come home, say to me, in you, Lord, the orphan finds mercy. So God invites them to turn that promise into a prayer. He says, come home, return to me, and when you come, I'm giving you the words to say. Plead with me to take away your iniquity and to accept you. Turn away from trusting in other things and other people and say to me, in you the orphan finds mercy. So the promise is, if we will acknowledge our spiritual poverty and helplessness before the Lord, if we will ask in faith for Him to remove our sinfulness and accept us, He will have mercy and receive us as His own children. The truth of the matter is, however, that the book of Hosea has an open ending because when when the, the last period is put on the last sentence, this was still an ongoing story. And there's this invitation for God's people to return to Him. There is a promise that He will heal their sin and receive them and love them freely. But from our vantage point in history, we know that Israel and Judah continue to be prodigal sons who would not come home to the Lord. Israel as a nation bore the wages of their sin. They suffered a national death, as it were. But God's promise was not nullified because from this sinful people, He sent a sinless Redeemer. Just as He continued to be faithful to His promise despite the deceitfulness of Jacob, 
God continued to be faithful to His promise despite the unrepentance of Israel. Jesus is the true and better Israel. He is the one who is truly the Son of God. Matthew shows us that in his account of the gospel, doesn't he? When he shows us Jesus in his early life, when Herod's trying to kill him, an angel comes to Joseph and says, take your son, take your family and flee. Go to Egypt. And when it's safe, I'll let you know. And so they go to Egypt and they're safe there for a while. And then God sends another dream and says, okay, it's safe. Go home to Nazareth. And Matthew quotes from Hosea 11 verse 1, out of Egypt I called my son. That verse, it was never only about Israel, it was never only about the Exodus, it was about Jesus. Out of Egypt I called my son. Unlike Adam and unlike Israel, Jesus is the perfect sinless son who always obeyed and who never failed. And although he had no sin of his own, he bore the wages of our sin and defeated defeated death from the inside out. And so... Hosea 13, verse 14, I said that it's a bit ambiguous. But after the death and resurrection of Jesus, it becomes very, very clear what God meant. Paul quotes that in 1 Corinthians 15 when he says, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus endured death, although He did not deserve it, and He conquered it and was victorious over it from the inside out so that we can now say, O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? So the the invitation stands. You can hear it in the last verse of the book in Hosea 14, verse 9. Whoever is wise, let him understand these things. Whoever is discerning, let him know them. For the ways of the Lord are right, and the upright walk in them, but transgressors stumble in them. Earnestly, tenderly, Jesus is calling, calling, O sinner, come home. We're going to sing a hymn of invitation, and this is our opportunity to respond to God's Word. And um, the invitation is to not harden our hearts, to not continue down the path of sin, but to turn Early, let us turn to Thee. Early, let us seek Thy favor. Early, let us do Thy will. Let me pray for us. Lord, we thank You for Your Word and how You show us the destructiveness of sin and the hope of restoration. Not hope in the sense of a wishful thinking, but hope in the certainty that if we will turn to You and truly seek Your face, that You will receive us that you will welcome us as your own. And Lord, we know that um, even those of us who are called your children, that there are times in our life, every day in fact, when we, when we wonder, as we sang earlier, prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it. And Lord, you so patiently and so gently continue to call us back onto the path of righteousness. And so, Lord, I pray that none of us would uh, trust in our own strength or in our own wisdom or in our own righteousness, but that we would run to you and that we would find in you grace to, to pardon and power to be transformed, that you, by your Spirit, would conform us to the likeness of your Son, Jesus, 
And Lord, if there's, if there's anyone who is listening to the sound of my voice right now who is so entrapped in the, the web of sin that you would shine a light of grace and peace and hope to them and that they would walk out of the darkness and into the light, that they would stop depending on themselves, they would stop depending on their ability and that they would grab a hold of you and cling to you and hear your invitation, come, come home. Ye who are weary, come home. Help us, Lord, and we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and sing together.